The next local train is now arriving. Please stand away from the platform edge. This is the Transit Matters Podcast. Transit Matters is a Boston-based nonprofit group that advocates for policies that support better personal mobility through equitable, quality transit service. Join us every few weeks for a deep dive into transit policy and issues. My name is Mark Ibunya, and I'm your host for this mini-episode of the podcast. This time, Jim Aloisi and I will ride together from Haymarket Station to a live recording of The Scrum by WGBH at Brass Union in Somerville's Union Square. Along the way, we'll discuss transport plans at Sullivan Square and reflect on issues that we come across during our trip, a trip that we all know too well could have been made on the Green Line extension. Going through the turnstiles at Haymarket Station, and hopefully we're not going to have a Hillary Clinton miscue here. (laughs) That worked out fine. Uh, We're going to take the orange line all the way to Sullivan Square, and then we'll pick up whatever bus is ready for us. You had suggested the CT2, but... I had thought that the CT2 would be congenial, but you've made another suggestion. I guess we have a four-minute wait here. In the meantime, the... uh, City of Boston is actually going to be reevaluating the Sullivan Square. What the mayor calls the Menino plan for Sullivan Square, are they reevaluating that? Is that the deal? Yeah, yeah. So that's, so BTD is picking that up. They had a community engagement meeting on the 30th of June. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that I've spoken to so far are a little upset about that because right now the word from BTD is that they're revisiting the project because they now have more accurate traffic counts. They're now taking into account all of the new developments. They have more information than they did in 2008. But I'm not sure how that should necessarily affect our goal with what we're planning to do with the area. What are your... Well, I think it's a legitimate question for people to ask. I can understand a lot of community folks put a lot of time and effort into working with the city on the existing plan. But I also understand the mayor's perspective, which is there have been intervening development at Assembly Square, for example, that perhaps people need to kick the tires on what they were planning to make sure that it is consistent with and reflective of the current and anticipated realities. But I don't know that it means starting from scratch. It probably means taking a lot of the good work that was done, applying current knowledge to it, and expediting an answer. I mean, I think the real question for Sullivan Square is, from my perspective, is twofold. One, if you didn't have a casino, and you were just dealing with Sullivan Square absent a casino, this is called audio verite, by the way. You can hear the announcement. If you just had Sullivan Square to consider in Rutherford Avenue, what would be the best way to approach that from a city perspective, a Charlestown perspective, and from a regional mobility perspective? Because Sullivan Square is not simply a local issue, it's a regional mobility issue. You now have the complicating factor of a casino across the the river. And I think that, candidly, I don't think people have engaged that as well as they should, right? I don't think we have yet a viable, credible plan to get people to and from that casino in anything other than a vehicle. And so if that's the case, by definition, it's gonna 
completely shatter everyone's prior expectations about how Sullivan Square should function. Well, so what we know about the mobility plan for the casino is that all casino employees will not be allowed to park at the casino itself, that they will need to take a shuttle from wherever they park, either at Sullivan Square or a facility that's provided by the city of Everett. They're still bringing a car in, though. Right, exactly, yeah. And then and, and then at least for Sullivan Square, there's, there's the competing mobility need. Uh, for regional, which is, from what I hear, is is also begging the question about whether or not we retain the underpass that a lot of people. Oh, well, the Orange Line train is finally here, so the Rutherford underpass. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that was gone in the current plan. Correct. I need to hold on to something. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm very good at uh, train surfing. So. Uh, many, many years of train surfing on the Green Line has trained me for this. So. Very good. But yeah, last I heard, the city was planning on possibly retaining the underpass, but I also wasn't able to attend the, the meeting. So, so that needs to be sorted out. I, yeah. The real question, though, continues to be, going back to what we were saying, employees can't park on site, but they have to park somewhere, presumably, as opposed to being able to take a, a, a transit solution to the site. I had suggested some time ago that um, people consider a dedicated ramp from the interstate right into the facility. I'm not kidding myself that people are going to need to drive to get there, but using the existing ramps off I-93 and the existing infrastructure is just not tenable. And so if you don't have a dedicated ramp into the casino, I think it begs the question of, of how Sullivan Square is supposed to function. Well, so we've also talked about the need for the MBTA to do uh, an overall system-wide analysis of, of the routes, and are they working, are they serving the needs? Is there any way that we can realign the routes to serve and to provide connections through Rutherford, is it Rutherford Avenue? Yes. Uh, so that way we have some sort of transit priority where we make it easier for people to make that transit choice. Yes. No, I think, yes. The question is, is that, is that, who's leading that effort to have that discussion? And it doesn't seem to me to be, have the kind of, of champion or leadership that it requires in order to get the kind of analysis that you really want to have to make that function work. Look, at the end of the day, I think... All of the city planning around Sullivan Square was planning that was undertaken with no one thinking about the, at least I believe, with no one thinking about the impacts a casino would have, because it's relatively new. And so now that's a big game changer. And uh, my fear, my concern, is that it's the impact of the casino is not simply going to be on Sullivan Square. It's going to be on... on both Interstate 93 sides, south and north, on the ramps coming off Interstate 93, and the impacts on extending peak hour congestion, on congesting Sullivan Square, and all of those are going to be something that, in the, when, once it happens, is going to be difficult to unravel. More audio verite. As we approach Sullivan Square, how do we think about using transit or prioritizing transit through Sullivan Square as we're about to experience the, the congestion of not just traffic but of, of buses that get stuck in that traffic and then are less effective to people who want to travel through the system? So, yeah, I think you begin by asking the question, so who is this public realm of Sullivan Square for? Who is it going to be designed for? Right. Uh, is it going to be designed for the motorist? 
Is it going to be designed for the pedestrian? Is it going to be decide, designed for the transit user? You need to answer a fundamental question. Now, someone would say, well, why do you have to make that choice? Maybe you don't, although I would argue that it's really hard in that location to design a public realm, a streetscape, a, 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 a safe cycling and walking environment that is designed with all of those players in mind. So you need to, there needs to be a community consensus around who are we designing for. When you know the answer to that question, then you can begin to think about designing a streetscape, a public realm that is transit friendly and pedestrian friendly and cycling friendly. But a, a public realm that ticks those three boxes is not going to function as very mobility friendly environment for people wanting to get to and from a casino, let alone to and from other destinations in the area. So there's a fundamental threshold question that needs to be resolved, right? You can't build two Sullivan squares on top of one another. You only have one, and it, and it can't function well serving all those needs, right? It can, it can do some of them, but not all. So some choices have to be made. What we know from history is that in our continued auto-centric society, oftentimes the choices that are made are choices that tilt toward vehicular mobility. And then by definition, um, transit, cycling, and walking take second drift. I guess the follow-up question, do you feel like we're at that point now where we are ready to prioritize transit, walking, and biking? Oh, sure. If you look at all of the... If you look at people's 21st century mobility preferences and paradigms, there's, there's just no question about what people want to do. If you look at the preferences of people who live in communities and and want to enjoy the amenities of those communities, there's no question that people want to be more oriented toward transit, toward bike, toward walking. And you have to balance that, the reality that there are other people who want to use that space uh, to drive through. I mean, I, I've spent most of my life uh, in East Boston, and I still have, um, I'm still in East Boston quite a bit because of family. So I know what it's like to be in a community where many people want to just drive through it, where the residents of the community want to see a much more transit-oriented, pedestrian-friendly, cycling-friendly environment. It's a challenge in older cities like ours that were sort of changed and altered in the middle of the 20th century pretty dramatically by tunnels and overpasses and and a much more vehicular orientation toward transportation infrastructure. But I think we're now in a, in a time when we need to be more responsive to people's needs and desires. So Sullivan Square is not immune. Unfortunately, we're looking out to a... We are in what appears to be sunny Sullivan Square right now as we speak. We're basically looking at a parking lot next to Sullivan Station, and we're standing under Interstate 93, uh, under one of the exit ramps into Sullivan Square. And we're kind of looking toward the site of what I think would be the casino. So we, we're, we're standing right at sort of ground zero, if you will, 
of the discussion we've just had. And, and now we wait for a bus. And now we wait for a bus. <laughs> By the way, just to reorient our listeners, we're going to uh, Union Square in Somerville, our destination, to participate in a WGBH podcast called The Scrum. Their focus is going to be on MBTA issues and, in particular, the GLX project. Part of it is intended to serve Union Square. GLX, for those listeners who may not know, although if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you know that GLX stands for the expansion extension of the Green Line from Leachmere into Somerville and Medford. Had all things gone well and according to plan, in theory, Mark and I should have gone to the Green Line tonight and should have been able to take a one-seat ride on the Green Line from our downtown location to Union Square. Possibly so, a transfer at Leachmere, you know. Possibly a transfer. So I guess the point of this is to highlight that we began our trip today not on the Green Line, but on the Orange Line uh, at Haymarket. Now we're at Sullivan Square. Now we're waiting for a bus, and that bus will take us to Union Square. So it's not impossible, but it's certainly not optimal and uh, not particularly responsive to, again, the changing demographics of Somerville, the changing demographics of an area where people want transit mobility. Well, and then also, I think that also touches tangentially to we're looking out here at a parking lot that could otherwise be a, a neighborhood, additional housing and offices for people to live to maybe satiate some of the market demand for transit-oriented development, but that's not what we have here. But that is what the Green Line extension has promised to unlock for Union Square, but is now years late, and I think a lot of other, I think that's another discussion that a lot of people want to have is what are the implications of the Green Line coming to Union Square? There's been a lot of fears about gentrification, even well before the Green Line has ever even arrived, now that the project has been put into question in terms of timeline. Everybody wants to know when is the project arriving and what do I do now that I'm getting displaced and the Green Line hasn't even arrived yet. Well, I don't know of any public policy that I've ever heard of that you can employ to stop gentrification, right? The only thing that stops gentrification is, you know, a recession, a depression, an economic or a physical catastrophe, right? I mean, gentrification happens for a lot of reasons that no single public policy can prevent. But what you can do is you can be alert to gentrification happening. You can try to be responsive to that in terms of housing policy. But I don't think that you can affect any kind of public policy, whether it's mobility or, or otherwise, to stop something that is part of a natural cycle of, of urban environments. You know, there's rise and there's decline. The, the city was in decline in the middle of the last century. The city is now, not just this city, but many other cities are on the upswing because people's preferences have changed and their desires have changed. So the thing about Sullivan's uh, Union Square uh, it probably has been gentrified, and, and, and bringing Green Line there may advance that. But it's really only responding to other, other things that are happening in the economy, in people's desires and preferences about where they want to live. And clearly in our time and in the foreseeable future, people want to live in generally dense, walkable, cyclable urban environments. It's, it's a new day. It's a new paradigm. People view cities differently than they viewed cities in 1950 and 1960. Right? And so, unless we respond to that uh, in a way, in a complete way. By the way, when, when we talk about responding to these changes, 
It's not simply to say we're going to respond to them by building extensions of the Green Line. We also have to think about equity, and we have to think about displacement. And so people who are being displaced, where are they going, and how are their mobility needs being served? We have fixed-route bus lines. Are those fixed routes still responding at a time when we know large populations are being displaced because of economic trends? That's the kind of thinking that we need to start employing in order to make sure that what we're doing is not just responsive to a limited number of people, but also very equitable. Are we in the wrong? <laughs> uh, yes, I think, I think we need to go back up this way. I see the CT2 has actually arrived, but I don't know if that's... Uh, will it stop for us? No? Uh, oh, no, maybe it's... I have no idea where this bus stop is. I think this is another issue with... And then I think the CT2 is further down this. Uh, that might just be a bus that's going out of service. So, just taking a little break to mull over with the route that we're gonna take, and it looks like a CT2 has just arrived. I guess the CT2 is our ride then, as opposed to the uh, the 86. Mark, I'm wondering what uh, what you thought about that experience we just had in terms of how easy it was for uh, someone to navigate. Which what was the right bus to take to our destination in Union Square? Well, it definitely wasn't easy considering the fact that there are so many buses. I guess the the convenience of choice made <laughs> it a little difficult. Uh, the fact that the CT2 stopped at a location where it wasn't very clear. I didn't see any signage no for the signage. CT2. Yeah. There was no signage. Yeah. So, so two self-described transit geeks had a very difficult time navigating. We'd been waiting for the 86, which goes the same place as the CT2, but CT2 showed up first. I guess some designer out there thought that it would be appropriate to have them berth at the same location, or relatively close. So that was good. We were able to get onto the bus. There's some folks who are still waiting for the 86 to take them to Reservoir. And now we do the slow crawl to Union Square with traffic. Not a huge lift to fix signage to let people know where a bus will stop. Yeah. We think that those are the kinds of small things that I, I was in Arch Street Church recently and saw a statue. I forget it, who the saint was. It was the saint of she was the patron saint of getting little things done. <laughs> and so it would be nice if we had appreciation of those little things, like signage, that would be helpful to me. Uh, that's, that's my uh, particular pet subject, mainly because I've, the service advisory signage that, that's uh, in the system now is in place because I saw a need where the MBTA had not been appropriately advising people in the system about service advisories when I first moved to Boston in 2009. And then with the work of, then work in, in working through Rich Davey and a few other folks underneath him, we were able to build a process and standardize service advisories as a thing that the T does mm -hmm. to inform passengers on the platforms during their commutes as they are captive audiences to information about their own commutes yes. to let them know that they're actually, <laughs> that there isn't going to be a train tomorrow or this weekend or something. So. Exactly. Yeah, knowledge is power, yeah. and uh, we live in an age where 
thanks, thanks to technology, we can empower people in ways undreamed of a decade ago, right? But <laughs> there's nothing more empowering than having a sign that is right there in the real Very world simple. that tells you. I was, I was impressed on a trip I made recently to the Netherlands. I was in The Hague, and the, uh, the tram system uh, followed the printed schedule, not the real-time schedule, the printed schedule to the second, to the second, um, without variation. So what I found out very quickly was that I didn't even need to worry about a, the technology-driven variable mesh sign because I could rely on the printed schedule. Were the, were the vehicles in the Hague, did they have their own portion of the road to run through? Were, did, were they in mixed traffic? Were they... The trams are, on, are they're dedicated light rail lines, mm -hmm. but they're also in mixed traffic. They are in mixed traffic. So even in mixed traffic, they manage to be on time. Yes. And when they're in mixed traffic, it's not just vehicles that they're mixing with. They're mixing with a lot of people on bicycles. Uh, but they manage to do it. Yeah. They're and, doing it safely. Uh, yeah. The, the fare payment in the Netherlands is interesting. It's one card called chip cart because it has a chip in it. And you can use it anywhere in the country. So the same card that I used in The Hague, I could use in Amsterdam, and I could use in Harlem and Rotterdam, and also on the inner city going to and from all those places. So a full week in the Netherlands, I used one card for every mode, and that was uh, rail, bus, and tram. I never once had a step into a motor vehicle. Do you know if that was synchronized across all of the agencies through central government or uh, was that just something that each agency came together and agreed this is the fair payment that we're going to use? I assume, I don't know, I assume it had to be centralized through a federal action, yeah. um, but it would be good to know. It would be good for people to actually explore how they do that because I thought it was, from a traveler's perspective, it could not have been easier. Right. Absolutely seamless. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, really surprised. So we're we're now on the CT2, and we're we're just about to pass under McGrath Highway, and I'm I'm actually personally really surprised how little traffic we've had to encounter. But I don't know. Maybe that's you're surprised that the level of traffic being too much or too it's, little. Oh, it's maybe. it's lower than usual. Lower than usual. Yeah. Well, it's summertime. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, no students. People are on vacation. Yeah. Out on the Cape. We have a variable message board here advertising about road work. I would say the bus is very nicely air conditioned. Yes. <laughs> so we're thankful for that. We were we were just sitting, uh, standing outside in uh, the sun um, at Sullivan Square. As as much as as much as the the uh, I ninety three covers the station, <laughs> it, it wasn't helping. <laughs> Uh, and then, well, so McGrath Highway is also scheduled to have its own grounding uh, at some point. Yes. Uh, and uh, have you been to have you been down to JP since they took down the Arborway? I have not. Have you? Oh yeah. Tell it, us your impression. So it's it's definitely still a little too wide for for what I think the area needs. But MassDOT is definitely taking into account in the design. 
bicycles as they go as they move through the intersections. There are continuations of the Southwest Corridor Trail through through the new Arbor Way Boulevardization that they're doing there. But uh, I guess this is where all the traffic is is leading up into Union Square. Uh, <laughs> so finally hit the traffic that I was expecting. You were expecting, yeah. And there's a broad smile across his face. <laughs> But in any case, yeah, it's I, I, I can only hope for the, the same for Somerville because Somerville, yes. McGrath Highway definitely acts as a as a barrier to this neighborhood and connecting with people across the country are wanting to take elevated highways down as barriers. Stop I was requested. talking recently to some people who were picking what's left of my brain from Syracuse, New York, yep. who are interested. There's a interstate there that is in desperate need of repair, but there's a local movement to to calm the interstate as it goes directly through the downtown. Yeah. Um, same is true. What I said to them is, you know, the two most famous uh, projects, the Big Dig and the Embarcadero, it took an earthquake to take the Embarcadero down. Um, and uh, But if you look at the, the outcomes both in San Francisco and Boston, you can't help but think that they were very positive for both for mobility and for quality of life for residents. But in San Francisco, on the Embarcadero, they got barred. We didn't get north-south. Well, that's, that's true. <laughs> we did not get north-south here. So. Um, the, um, we, we have, there's no question that we need to find a better way to connect north and south station. You know, I have said, and I'm a big fan of, of Governor Dukakis, and I have a lot of respect for Bill Weld. Um, and I've said, if in a perfect, if, if we lived in a perfect world, we would be we would be building that. But we don't live in a perfect world, and, and so I think, um, sadly, we need to think about what our what what our reasonable resources are over the coming, say, 10 years, and how would we spend those resources to their highest the best use if we wanted to make that, that investment and improve public transportation and urban mobility. I don't know that North South Rail would make the cut. I think I think we should probably get off here. <laughs> Oh, and unfortunately our bus has stopped in the middle of a bike lane because that's the way that it's designed is for us to... This is the, it's not the bus driver's fault as much as it's the design of the bikeway, right? Right. You, you wouldn't see that happening in, in, in Amsterdam or The Hague. And uh, Boston City Council President Wu recently came back from her visit to the Netherlands. I believe, was, mm-hmm. did she go specifically to Amsterdam where she regaled us of her experience and yeah these are design considerations that people on bikes are just expected to put up with having to trade places with buses when buses pull over to make their bus stop so well we keep thinking about cycling lanes as sort of sharing the road with vehicles and what i have been trying to get across to folks is the issue isn't sharing the road this is more audio verite here uh, the issue is each having its own dedicated place on the road. I actually don't know where we're supposed to be going. <laughs> so we're here in Union Square, and I think we've actually just walked past 
Brass Union, there we go. And uh, it is conveniently <laughs> directly in front Very of the bus stop. Transit friendly, yeah. so we appreciate that. Uh, and we, it was so, so transit friendly that we actually missed it. Thanks for listening in. If you're a Redditor, subscribe to the MBTA subreddit. That's mbta.reddit.com. Post news and keep the conversation going. Do you have a guest you'd like us to feature on this podcast? Some podcasting tips, constructive feedback, and compliments? Drop us an email at feedback at transitmatters.info. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play to catch this and other episodes. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates. And visit our website, transitmatters.info, for more news, to subscribe for updates, or learn about our volunteer opportunities. Thanks again for joining us. And tune in next time, because transit matters. This is the last stop. No passengers, please. Please watch your step leaving the train.